0: Stardust Swings by another comet, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome to Public Radio's travel show that takes you to the final frontier. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society. It was just a few months ago that planetary scientist Jessica Sunshine joined us to talk about the last comet encounter by a spacecraft Now she's back with the story of yet another, the Stardust Next missions flyby of Comet Temple 1 on Valentine's Day, February 14. What a cosmic dance this has been. I'll explain why in a few minutes. Joining me in conversation with Jessica will be our own Emily Lakdawalla. That's why we won't be hearing Emily's usual Planetary Society blog update this week. We will hear from Bruce Betts, though. The Society's Director of Projects will provide his usual rundown of the way up, and we've got yet another space trivia contest for you with a very cool new prize. We'll go now to a special report from Bill Nye. The Executive Director of the Planetary Society was at the Kennedy Space Center on the 24th of February. It was a beautiful day to launch a space shuttle, and that's exactly what happened. Of course, I wish it had happened last November, when I was on the Cape for several aborted countdowns. You know that I'm incredibly envious, because there you were watching the launch that that should have been mine.
1: You did a great job with it. (laughs) Uh, This is Shuttle Transport System STS-133, launched last week and was spectacular. I happened to be in Orlando, Florida for National Engineers Week which Disney and Underwriters Laboratories helped sponsor. It was big fun. I got the crowd excited about becoming engineers, I hope. But then we went out, I went out to uh, the launch pad, and I got credentials through CNN. It was great. We did a couple bits. Uh, John and I, the uh, CNN guy, did a couple bits about uh, space flight and the future. And, you know, the big thing at NASA, Matt is what is the future of human spaceflight? And even if you're not a resident of the United States, even if you're not a citizen of the U.S., this affects you because NASA spends more money than anybody else in space exploration. And so all of space exploration sort of looks to the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, NASA for guidance or leadership or what have you. And now they're going to have, NASA's going to have no way for humans to get to the International Space Station on U.S.-made rockets. I, myself, I'm fine with that. Time to move on. But these are, um, these are big deal launches if you got a chance. There's two more. The ground shakes. Your chest shakes. Everybody just looks at it as the most spectacular thing because when they're big, heavy rockets like this carrying a uh, 737 worth of cargo into space, they move off the launch pad, if I can use the term, Slowly. They go much more slowly than lighter-weight rockets, and so it's, it's spectacular.
0: It was spectacular even in the little YouTube video, but boy, I'd have given anything to be there. Uh, and I guess we would have even more reason to be there next time, because the Planetary Society will have a little tiny piece of that cargo space?
1: Absolutely, yes. The Living Interplanetary Flight Experiment. This is a, uh, a mission that we're going to send to the moon of Mars, Phobos, ...with some freeze-dried living things on it, and we'll see, we will test the hypothesis. Can you, if you're a living thing, make the trip from Mars to the Earth without getting cooked by radiation or cold, for example? So in order to fly anything in space, Matt, you have to already have it flown. Wait a second. (laughs) That's right. It's good to have something, to have your item, your experiment, have some flight heritage... So, on shuttle launch 134, which is scheduled right now for April 19th, we will get some flight heritage on our Living interplanetary Flight Experiment, and we'll have some uh, bacteria. We hope to have the arsenate bacteria. These would be the astrobiologically fascinating organisms that seem to have replaced their phosphorus with arsenic, just like in that Star Trek episode where the Horta replaces its uh, carbon with silicon. And uh, we will have the water bears, the happy little tardigrades, which if you look at them with the right microscopy, seem to be like little bears. (laughs) So I was there for uh, Shuttle 133. Everything shakes. And the rocket, this huge thing, gets up into space. And it was delayed. And there was a concern it wasn't going to launch within three seconds because the downrange computer keeping track of the thing to make sure that it stays on course. If it gets too far off course, they jettison the shuttle and they blow the thing up. It's quite a risky business, this rocket flight. It's very exciting. I hope to see all of you down there for 134 in April as the Planetary Society gets some flight heritage on our living interplanetary flight experiment. Matt, thank you for uh, including me in the broadcast. I'll talk to you next week. i got to fly Bill Nye, the planetary
0: guy. And he's the executive director of the Planetary Society, and he will be back next week with his uh, regular commentary. I'll be back in just a few moments with Jessica Sunshine and Emily Lakdawalla, too, to talk about the Temple One flyby just completed by Stardust Next. Many of you probably heard my conversation with Emily Lakdawalla on last week's show. The Planetary Society Science and Technology Coordinator told us about her conversation with Stardust Next co-investigator Jessica Sunshine. They talked right after that spacecraft encountered Comet Temple 1 on February 14. Does the name Temple 1 ring any bells? It should. This is the comet that another spacecraft, called Deep Impact, zapped with a copper projectile back in 2005. Bear with me here because it gets complicated. Jessica was the Deep Impact Deputy Principal Investigator, which later morphed into a dual mission called EPOXY. That's a fairly tortured acronym for extrasolar planet observation and characterization and the Deep Impact Extended Investigation. Deep Impact EPOXY flew by Comet Vild 2 last November, and Jessica joined us to talk about that spectacular encounter. Elsewhere in the solar system, Stardust Next was already headed toward Temple 1, Deep Impact's old target. So, long story short, Stardust gave us a second look at this big comet and even caught sight of the crater left by that impactor six years ago. Jessica and I recently connected via Skype for a conversation about this latest comet to be visited by one of our robots. Jessica, it hasn't been all that long since uh, you were last on planetary radio, just last fall, that we were uh, talking about uh, deep impact epoxy, and uh, here we are ready to talk about. Another spectacular comet flyby.
2: Yeah, it's an embarrassment of riches. It's been a great couple of months for cometary science.
0: I'll say, and I'm sure we will get full agreement from the third participant in our call, and that is Emily Lakdawalla, who uh, most of us know as uh, the person that we talk to about the Planetary Society blog every week. Of course, she carefully follows these things and, and had a recent blog entry with sort of early science um, thoughts, observations. Uh, is that a, a fair characterization, Emily?
3: Yeah, I guess it's a fair characterization. You know, I, I always have fun uh, coming up to scientists after these encounters and trying to poke at them for their early speculations. And, uh, you know, people are um, circumspect about trying to say too much about what they saw in the images. But but it's always great fun to get those first impressions and the excitement right after an encounter.
0: Bill Burkey, who was just on last week, I, I tried to get him uh, the the. Pre- Previous time he was on to tell me, okay, so how many planets did you discover? But uh, he was a good scientist, didn't didn't tell us. So Jessica, we won't force you to uh, go out on too many limbs here, but it's safe to say that this was a pretty successful flyby.
2: It, yes, wi- wildly successful, and and really reached uh, beyond all our exper- expectations.
0: Yeah,
3: Emily. Well, you know, I, I was really struck by the juxtaposition of the Hartley-2 and the Temple-1 flybys. Hartley-2 is a very small, extremely active comet, and and Temple-1 is a much bigger and much less active one. And I was wondering, um, it you know, if you could kind of compare and contrast the two comets since, since the encounters were so close to each other.
2: Well, you're right. They are very different comets. And in fact, it's almost one of the is one of the science goals of the Deep Impact flyby of Hartley 2 was to compare it to Temple 1. Uh, We just got to compare it twice because we had the old data from 2005 and the new stuff, which is amazing. Um, Temple 1 is much bigger. There's a lot more geomorphology going on. There's more variations in the terrain, largely because, I assume, because it's bigger. It is, of course, producing gas, mostly water and CO2, Uh, but at a much uh, slower rate given its size than Hartley-2. And what we saw at Hartley-2 was almost everything we observed was about the or had some effect from the outgassing. And perhaps the biggest difference is that we found pieces of the comet at Hartley-2 outside the comet, actually in uh, the coma, these ice grains. Uh, And I can tell you that we looked with the very same instruments at Temple 1 for these materials and didn't find anything like that in its coma. And so we're in a very fortunate state now where we're able to go and look at these two different comets in two different states and try to understand what it, how comets really evolve. And where Stardust is remarkable in, in helping us here is that we've been able to see Temple 1 twice now, uh, one basically one comet year, one trip around the solar system apart, five and a half of our years, and what we've observed is that uh, there are changes on the surface. There are places that are not the same as they were, where material has clearly uh, disappeared over that year. But that most of the surface, at least to a first order, seems to be pretty much the same. So all that material that we're seeing coming out of it uh, is certainly not coming out uniformly. And we're in the very early stages of trying to figure out you know, how little change there is on the bulk of the surface.
3: Now, Stardust and Deep Impact were two very different spacecraft. And I think probably from your point of view, one of the biggest differences is that Stardust doesn't have a spectrometer, correct? Correct.
2: So, or, or color, for that matter.
3: So really, the second flyby was, was all about morphology, all about the shape of the comet and what you'd seen change from the first um, encounter to the second one.
2: That's correct. We had uh, no compositional information, Uh, so for example, we couldn't look for, uh, we can't look for ice as we can with the spectrometer and the color instrument. Of course, on the other way, there is a dust instrument on uh, Stardust that is not on deep impact. However, we've now seen the dust environment at two different comets with that instrument, VILD 2 originally, and Temple 1 now, and we saw in both cases that the dust behavior is very similar.
3: I was going to ask about that. You know, you've now seen three comets with two spacecraft. And, and so now can you translate what you've seen at, at Hartley-2 and compare to VILT-2 based on the, the kind of comparison to the deep impact data from Temple-1? Can you go through all three of the comets and make those comparisons now?
0: We should mention that VILT-2, of course, was uh, the first stop for uh, the Stardust spacecraft, it, its primary and, and initial target out there.
3: That's definitely the goal. I
2: certainly won't claim that we can do it this instant, but we're starting to make those comparisons, and so, for example, there doesn't appear to be any Vild 2, like, large, circular, sort of shallow depressions that you see on Vild 2 anywhere on Hartley, and we hadn't really seen them on Temple 1 from the first flyby, but with this new flyby, there are regions that look more similar to Vild 2 than we had ever seen before perhaps the most enigmatic features on Temple 1 layering that we had seen on the front side the first time and now see even more on the back side of Temple 1, if you will. We don't see any real evidence of that on the other two comets yet. And, of course, you have to account for the differences in scale uh, and their histories. But, yeah, you, you, you hit the big nail on the head, which is we do need to put all these things together into some common understanding of what's going on and we're at the very initial stages of trying to figure that out.
0: That's Stardust Next co-investigator Jessica Sunshine. She and Emily Lakdawalla will be right back with more about the spacecraft's flyby of Comet Temple 1. This is Planetary Radio. I'm Robert Picardo. I traveled across the galaxy as the doctor in Star Trek Voyager. Then I joined the Planetary Society to become part of the real adventure of space exploration. The Society fights for missions that unveil the secrets of the solar system. It searches for other intelligences in the universe, and it built the first solar sail. It also shares the wonder through this radio show, its website, and other exciting projects that reach around the globe. I'm proud to be part of this greatest of all voyages, and I hope you'll consider joining us.
3: You can learn more about the Planetary Society at our website, planetary.org slash radio, or by calling 1-800-9-WORLDS. Planetary Radio listeners who aren't yet members can join and receive a Planetary Radio t-shirt. Our nearly 100,000 members receive the internationally acclaimed Planetary Report magazine. That's planetary.org slash radio. The Planetary Society, exploring new worlds.
0: Welcome back to Planetary Radio. I'm Matt Kaplan. Two great guests this week, University of Maryland Senior Research Scientist Jessica Sunshine is telling us about the February 14 Stardust Next encounter with Comet Temple 1. Also joining the conversation is my Planetary Society colleague, Emily Lakdawalla. And since you're wondering, NEXT stands for New Exploration of Temple 1. Jessica, are we even, even anywhere near being able to say whether comets are more similar to each other or dissimilar? I mean, is is there a lot of diversity among these bodies?
2: Well, if we go back a few years, people had this impression that uh, comets were, you know, snowballs, right? Uh, they yeah, were dirt,
0: dirty snowballs. We were always dirty told. dirty
2: snowballs. Sometimes we used to joke were snowy dirt balls, <laughs> uh, which is probably more accurate. And that they were gently put together in the – when the solar system was formed of, you know, small particles coming together and gently aggregating. And that basically they were all the same. Well, I think we know that that's just completely wrong. Um, They're not all the same. They don't seem to have the same uh, compositional makeup. And we can see that uh, from surveys of comets with telescopes – we can also see that very dramatically in Hartley 2, where we have different kinds of gases coming out of different parts of the comet. There was evidence of that at Temple 1 uh, from Deep Impact that there was outgassing of different types of material. And we also see that they've evolved differently over time, uh, different parts and maybe in different ways. What's difficult to sort out, but certainly what we're all trying to do, is how much of what we're seeing in the diversity represents diversity that's primary in that it formed that way originally when the comets were forming and how much of it represents evolution and undoubtedly we have both going on that's what makes this exciting
0: I always love it when a scientist says, we now know we were completely wrong.
3: I think that's one of the humbling things about space exploration is that, um, you know, most of the time you're wrong. And every time you send a new spacecraft to a new place, you find out that everything you thought you knew was wrong and you have to make up new hypotheses. And yeah. it's, uh, it's humbling. And, and the,
2: gr- the great thing about Stardust is we sent, you know, OK, a new spacecraft, but it was a place we've been. And I, I don't think any of us in our wildest dreams would have predicted the, what the backside looked like.
3: Now, can you describe a little bit about what you saw at the backside that so surprised you? Well, first of all, we started to see, uh, as you first came around, and I call it the
2: backside just to distinguish it from the previous one. It's probably not the best term. Um, but as we came around to the new side that we hadn't seen before, we started seeing many, many more circular features than we'd seen before. And it remains to be determined whether those have to do with impact cratering or more likely have to do with outgassing and it's always a bit surprising when you, you're used to something <laughs> and you see a little bit more and it's not, doesn't really look like anything you'd seen previously. And there was, when we first came around, a fairly large depression, which again, we hadn't seen before. And I actually was in charge of trying to help put some of that, that particular figure together for the press conference. And I had one at that point. And then someone called out, and said, Jess, you need to see this. And it was the next image, or probably two images later, so about a half hour later. And that's when we really came around, and we suddenly could see those layers that cut through over a kilometer of this new side, uh, sitting in a depression that, frankly, looks like it's something out of the, the desert southwest, not something you would see on a comet. And when we saw layers in the front, it was sort of in a cliff face, about a 100-meter cliff face, and it almost was easy to suggest, well, maybe we're looking at two different pieces of comets that came together, and this is somehow some seam between the two. But this one is clearly not just that the layers are there, but they've also eroded in a very large hmm. scale. So, And s- I can tell you for sure that as we, several of my colleagues came over to look at this, we literally had jaws dropping.
0: Cool. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Jessica, we're just about out of time. Uh, to to coin a phrase, what's uh, what's next from Stardust? Next, uh, more more science, more conclusions to come.
2: Well, unfortunately, the spacecraft itself, as I think people know, is out of out of fuel, so it, it's being decommissioned. We've taken our last image. There is a lot of assimilation to do. I mean, you've seen all the images we have. It's not like there's new data coming out, but it is really the hard work now, which is to sit back and try to figure out what it all means. And I think in the next three or so months, uh, you know, we're working towards the the, the science paper uh, that will come out of this. And that's where we're really focused on both these new terrains as well as uh, showing and interpreting what it was the uh, actual uh, Deep Impact Crater site looks like.
0: Emily, I'm sure you'll continue to follow all of this in the Planetary Society blog.
3: I'll be paying close attention.
0: I just got one other question, Jessica. You are part of the first generation of scientists with data gathered from comets up close and personal. You got to feel pretty lucky
2: I feel amazingly lucky to be part of this Hartley too was was spectacular in so many ways, and you know we really weren't sure if the spacecraft and the camera and the comet were going to cooperate with Stardust Next and the, and it did in every way possible and so you just have to pinch yourself at the end of the day.
0: <laughs> Congratulations on uh, on this yet another uh, very successful uh, comet flyby and thank you for for joining us as you have several times in the past here on Planetary Radio.
2: No, my pleasure. It's great fun.
0: Jessica Sunshine is a uh, Stardust Next co-investigator. And, of course, she was the deputy principal investigator, or still is, I suppose, for Deep Impact Epoxy. She's a senior research scientist at the University of Maryland. And, uh, Emily, thank you for joining us.
3: Always a pleasure, Matt.
0: And, of course, we'll hear from Emily again next week with her uh, regular report on the best of the uh, Planetary Society blog that you can always find at planetary.org. She is the science and technology coordinator for the Planetary Society and a contributing editor to Sky and Telescope magazine. You know who's up next. It's Bruce Betts with this week's edition of What's Up. That's just a few seconds away. It's time for What's Up with uh, Dr. Bruce Betts, the Director of Projects for the Planetary Society, who's at the other end of the Skype line. And you're not going to rub it in, right, that, uh, that I talked to Bill about going to the launch that I should have been able to see last November. Maybe a little, but but yeah, later. A little yeah. bit later. On.
4: Yeah, no, we're glad Bill got to see it, and of course glad that you didn't. Uh, <laughs> uh, what I really God. don't understand is why you're going to Florida a few days later. But
0: I know it doesn't make much sense, does it? But it's uh, unrelated. Unrelated. You, can, you should really drive
4: over to the Cape and just look longingly.
0: Maybe I can. Maybe I can smell the liquid hydrogen uh, wafting uh, through the breeze still. <laughs> <laughs>
4: there, there's, there's so many technical issues with that, but we won't go into it right now.
0: Well, go into what's up in
4: the night sky. All right. Evening, Jupiter, super bright over in the west. Beautiful little juxtaposition happening. March 6th, check out the uh, crescent moon right near super bright Jupiter, low in the west, uh, shortly after sunset. Saturn rising between eight and nine, Saturn up high by middle of the night, and looking kind of yellowish, and it is above Spica, the brightest star in Virgo, and here's my my how to find Spica. Find the Big Dipper, you know, that Ursa Major thing, and take that curve, that arc, and if you follow that arc in a curving motion of the handle of the Dipper, you'll get to Arc Taurus. Oh, clever. Very bright star. But wait, don't stop. Keep arcing along the same approximate curve, and you'll come to a bright star. About, again, across the skyways, and that will be Spica. And if you look above Spica, you'll see Saturn looking kind of yellowish, Spica looking basically bright. Similar in brightnesses right now. Tricky, huh? Tricky, yes. Yeah. Pre-dawn, Venus, Super bright over in the east uh, before before dawn. We move on to this week in space history. Uh, it was this week in 1966, 45 years ago, that Venera 3, a uh, Soviet mission to Venus, that they were trying to make a lander on Venus, became the first impactor on Venus. Uh, but we do love it in trivia Land because it is the, uh, the first human-made object to impact or touch the
0: surface of another planet. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, oh, and by the way, you are on your own. W- you know, once again, there was kind of a science fiction element to that, which I can't explain. But I'm glad you pulled it off.
4: I got to get out the theremin next time. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Forbidden so, planet.
4: So Discovery that we were just talking about launched this last week, STS-133.
0: Mm, don't rub it in.
4: Uh, sorry. Strangely, even though they uh, never really tied these numbers carefully, somehow STS-133 has actually ended up to be the 133rd shuttle flight. It is the uh, 39th flight for Discovery. This is tops among all the orbiters. Uh, Atlantis in second, currently with 32. And this is the 35th shuttle mission dedicated to station assembly and maintenance. Hmm. Discovery, the, grand, the, the current grand old orbiter on its, uh, its last voyage. That, did you see that launch, Matt? Oh, wait. Sorry. Forgot. <laughs> it was
0: quite beautiful on YouTube. <laughs>
4: <laughs> I can at least get it in high def. Oh, well. We move on to the trivia contest.
0: Please.
4: <laughs> uh, we asked you not counting Apophis in 2029. What asteroid gets the brightest in the night sky? How'd we do, Matt?
0: A variety of answers, but uh, by far, those of you who entered uh, seem to believe that it was Is Vesta. It is indeed. Excellent. Well, Caroline Fletcher uh, had it the most right, apparently, because Random.org decided that she would be this week's winner. Uh, Caroline Fletcher of Marion, Illinois, we are going to send you solar system for ipad or actually touch press the uh, publisher of solar system for ipad is going to send that out to uh, caroline so enjoy that on your uh, ipad or uh, your friend's ipad Uh, this is that really cool interactive book specifically designed for the ipad uh, the author of which is marcus chown a listener to the show and uh, congratulations caroline Congratulations.
4: Uh, throw in a little a little extra random space factage for you. Vesta uh, reaches not quite magnitude five, which means it actually does get uh, naked eye visible uh, mm. d- during its oppositions, although they do vary considerably. But you'd have to be in a much darker sky than, than we are to see it. Uh, and you also may ask yourself, I'm sure you did, Matt, you've probably fretted about why. Why is it brighter in the sky than Ceres, even though Ceres uh, is bigger? And, I bet it has
0: something to do with that guy. Uh, what's his name? Albedo.
4: Gosh, you're right. It's all. <laughs> first of all, it's a little closer. But a lot of the answer is due to due to that, that guy, Albedo. It has a much higher albedo, which is basically its brightness. So it's a much brighter object reflecting more light. There you go. Thank you for we that. We move on to our uh, next trivia contest. Coming back to our friend Discovery, including the current flight, sts 133 how many times... Did Discovery visit the International Space Station? Go to planetary.org/radio find out how to enter.
0: I know it was the champion, but we'll leave it at that. I'm not going to give any other hand, hints. Not hints. No, please hints. don't. I certainly won't. You have until the seventh of March, March seven. That's Monday at two p.m. Pacific time to get us that answer. Hey, and we've got a very cool prize. I will now tell you about it. Oh um, yay! Livio Radio. Uh, which you can find at livioradio.com. They make these very, very cool Internet radios that you can put around the house, and uh, some of them have all the NPR stations pre-programmed, some have Pandora. Uh, They have a new device called the Carmen. Which uh, makes it very easy to use, basically, use internet radio in your car. It's a sort of a player and an FM transmitter, and you just plug it right in and it works great. Well, anyway, they've given us a few of these to give away. And uh, what better way to listen to uh, planetary radio if you're one of our podcast listeners? Uh, you can catch it this way if you're not near one of our radio stations or a Sirius XM listener. So that's what we will have for uh, the winner next week, or actually uh, in two weeks when we award this. Cool. I was impressed. You're easily impressed. True enough.
4: But in this case, you have good reason for it. <laughs> All right, we done here? Yes, we are. All right, everybody, go out there, look up the night sky, and think about mechanical pencils. Not those lame ones that poke you, but really well-designed ones, which are so hard to find. Thank you,
0: and good night. I never use them because I break the leads. I have a heavy hand. What can I say? Matt the Destroyer. (laughs) He's Bruce Betts, the director of projects for the Planetary Society. He'll join us uh, next week right here for What's Up. How did amino acids, the building blocks of life, get into a rock that recently fell to Earth? That's our topic next week on Planetary Radio, which is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and made possible in part by a grant from the Kenneth T. and Eileen L. Norris Foundation. Clear skies.